Thank you all very much for joining us for the second in this series of Asian undercurrents. Uh, I'm Michael Green. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington and a Professor and Director of Asian Studies at Georgetown University. It's early in the morning here in Washington. Uh, our topic today for this uh, second in the series is the Quad, the US, Japan, Australia, India grouping. Um, the title is Quad Over Troubled Waters. Um, and I will be joined by um, about the best um, uh, makeup of experts to form our own little quad in this panel that we could uh, expect. Uh, Rory Metcalf is the head of the um, National Security College at Australia National University. Um, I think many historians uh, are already crediting him with, um, if not coining the term Indo-Pacific, certainly making it mainstream among strategic thinkers in all four of our countries. Um, Darshana Barua at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington um, has emerged as one of the most interesting and forward-looking writers and scholars on Indian Ocean strategic concepts, and in particular, India's maritime uh, security concepts. And uh, Kanihara Nobukatsu, who uh, is a friend and co-conspirator uh, uh, through several administrations, <clears throat> um, was um, the, um, in many respects, uh, brain uh, behind the scenes in the first and especially second Abe governments. In the second, he served in the um, uh, National Security Council staff in the prime minister's office, um, uh, where he drove forward the quad. So we have uh, people who know the quad past, present, and future. Um, we will hear from each of the panelists uh, briefly on uh, where they see the quad uh, as a grouping uh, going, um, who's in, who's out, who's it against, who's it for, uh, what are some of the complications, what are some of the opportunities. We have a set of questions I've received from the audience and from some uh, experts in the audience, which we'll turn to. Um, and uh, look forward to um, helping illuminate for everyone where this uh, very important grouping of major maritime democracies is heading. Um, I was in some ways, uh, I thought, there at the birth of the Quad in December uh, 2004, after the massive Indian Ocean tsunami. I was the senior Asia official in the White House. It was after Christmas, so most US officials were actually gone. Our government was probably about the size of the Australian government that week and very efficient as a result. Um, and we didn't know the extent of the damage from the tsunami at first. It, it stretched from Sri Lanka to um, Banda Aceh in Thailand. But we soon found out with satellite imagery and reports. And the US Navy 7th Fleet was steaming in the region. Uh, the Admiral in charge had close relations with his Japanese, Australian and Indian counterparts, proposed a task force. And in less than 24 hours, the governments of Australia, uh, the US, Japan, and India stood up the quadrilateral uh, task force to rescue uh, thousands, thousands of people across the Indian Ocean region. And it was a concept that was very natural um, and one that animated um, Abe Shinzo, uh, who in his bid for prime minister in 2006 proposed a summit of the quad countries. That proved to be a little too rich a little too much, particularly for the foreign ministries and the State Department in all four countries. Um, and in 2008, the dynamic with China changed a bit. Kevin Rudd came in, Fukuda Yasuo in Japan, Hu Jintao was on his best behavior. Um, and the Quad kind of lost momentum 
for political and geopolitical reasons. But now it's back. The Trump administration uh, brought it back as a foreign minister's forum with enthusiastic support from Canberra, Japan, uh, and India. Um, and while many observers weren't sure how the Biden administration would handle the Quad, given some ambivalence in the Obama years, it's clear now that the Quad is, in many respects, the centerpiece of uh, President Biden's own Indo-Pacific strategy. With a virtual summit meeting uh, held several months ago and um, expectations of an in-person Quad summit uh, next month in September. So this is a very dynamic and important part of the landscape of the Indo-Pacific and the foreign policy and defense strategies of all four of our countries. So let me turn uh, first to Rory um, to give us his perspective on the uh, past, present, and future of this quad. Thank you, Rory. Thank you very much, Mike. And it really is a privilege to be with this group, uh, which, which needs no, no introduction, uh, a re real, real honor. Um, look, I will divide my remarks into two very simple segments. I want to first frame what I see as the strategic challenges facing the, the region in the context of why the Quad is back and why it's here to stay. And then in the second half, I want to talk a little bit about the prospects for the Quad, the, um, the ambitions, but the limitations of that. How do we manage the expectations of this important grouping going forward? Look, firstly, on the strategic challenges, I mean, there are no great secrets or mysteries here anymore. We live in an age of disruption in the Indo-Pacific, um, challenges to a rules-based order, shifting power balances, and, and really quite comprehensive coercion as a tool of statecraft. And there's no uh, mystery uh, to say that, um, that China is at the centre of, of much of that much of that dynamic. Plenty of other risks across the landscape and we have to acknowledge, I think in this conversation, uh, and maybe we'll come back to that later on, the impact of um, the, the devastating situation in Afghanistan and how that will affect the region. But on the picture of power politics in the Indo-Pacific, it really is very much a China story. And again, to recap, uh, as we've seen over the past five or six years now, um, comprehensive coercion against many countries. Um, Australia, if you like, one of the frontline states now, but uh, partners in Southeast Asia, India, Japan, Europe, you know, many are experiencing what Chinese coercion looks like. Um, at the same time, I think we've seen, uh, again, over the recent years, a, uh, a broadening of the theatre of strategic competition to not only take in many players and many powers and a larger geographic canvas of the Indo-Pacific, uh, because, of course, the, the Belt and Road, the Maritime Silk Road, China's signature strategic um, ambitions, geoeconomic ambitions are Indo-Pacific uh, and global in, in character. But we've also seen, I think, more and more players come into this picture. It's not simply a US-China rivalry. There is obviously a US-China rivalry uh, at the heart of much of strategic competition, but it's not just China's challenge to uh, American preeminence. It's also China's challenge to the interests and the values of many. And that's where I think Japan, India, Australia have really in recent years taken 
quite a significant lead in 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 mapping the the contours of um, of constraining Chinese power, of pushing back, of defining how we protect our own interests and our own values. So in that context, what is the Quad all about and what are its limits and, and, and its prospects? Well, look, there I'd say that um, we, we, we have to be careful the Quad is not a victim of its own success. It's gone from being dismissed by uh, the Chinese government five years ago, as I think memorably described as ocean foam, um, I think maybe even less than five years ago, three years ago, it was criticised by many analysts and commentators in our own countries as being um, unrealistic, as being, if you like, the resurrection of uh, a short-lived partnership from, uh, if you like, the, the Bush um, era. But at the same time, there's now almost an expectation that it will become a formal alliance or that it will become a NATO-like structure where our militaries closely cooperate, where we have almost a sense of mutual obligation in um, circumstances of uh, strategic contingency. And of course, one of the big question marks there is what does the Quad do uh, in a contingency like a Taiwan scenario, an East China Sea scenario, China-India border, South China Sea? So I think we now have to find that sweet spot of the Quad uh, delivering, but not over-promising. And I think, to be fair, that is where the four governments are now aiming. Um, just to give a few examples of that, the Quad is, um, is not... Uh, presenting itself as a purely military arrangement. Um, I think it's very good news that Australia is now in the Malabar exercises really for the long term. In other words, uh, maritime naval exercises, high-end military exercises with quad partners. Uh, it's good news that bilaterally and trilaterally our countries are again working more and more closely in the military space. But a lot of the fascinating and promising developments of the Quad are actually not in the military domain. The Quad leaders statement, which we'll hear a lot more about shortly, the, the summit, virtual summit meeting held early this year in March, uh, looked at uh, issues of technology, of environment, of uh, public goods, vaccine distribution, as areas where the Quad could, if you like, return to those origins that Mike Green has spoken of as being a core group for providing public goods to the region and for defining really the protection of the interests of the many in this multipolar regional order. So I think going forward, we have an ambition of um, managing expectations, but also pushing those boundaries uh, within our four countries. And look, the last couple of points I want to put on the table for the conversation um, as, as, as we get into this discussion, one is um, how do Quad partners manage the way in which China will respond to or perceive the Quad? And how do Quad partners manage uh, the interests of others? Uh, the fact is that there are many countries in the Indo-Pacific uh, that have been reluctant, of course, to align in strategic competition with China, particularly partners in Southeast Asia. And it's really important to find a way in which the Quad can not only coexist 
with ASEAN-centric uh, diplomatic institutions, but in fact demonstrate that the Quad is a net benefit for those countries. I think it's possible, uh, but I think that's where our diplomats will need to do creative Quad Plus arrangements on particular issues, working with countries like Vietnam or Singapore or, or Indonesia, uh, Korea, New Zealand, the Europeans, whoever it may be, on specific issues, keeping the Quad as the firm core of a flexible um, array of cooperative arrangements. And, and lastly, I do see a lot of promise in doubling down on the non-military aspects of the Quad while also keeping that military cooperation um, normalised. Uh, political summits, fantastic, but also getting our, if you like, economic institutions beginning to coordinate, encouraging our private sectors to coordinate, aggregating that uh, those relative strengths of our four democracies in all of the ways that really only democracies can do. Uh, and I would just note today that my own college, which, which leads a quad tech network of, of, of track two institutions, has published a paper on how quad partners can work together in building resilience in our supply chains, um, battery technologies, rare earth minerals. I'm going to leave it there. I really look forward to the discussion. And again, it's a, it's a real privilege to be with, uh, with this group. Um, terrific. Thanks, Rory. And, a, and a, a good menu for us to come back to in the discussion as we talk about how we operationalize this uh, grouping going forward. Um, Darshana, over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Um, and to Nikkei and the organizers for putting this panel together. Um, it's, really, uh, it's really an honor to be with all of you here. I've worked with all of you. And of course, uh, 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 Professor Metcalf and uh, Kanehara son very recently as well. So it's, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, just following from the, uh, Dr. Metcalf's kind of uh, overlay of what the Quad has been doing and what it has done, I, I guess the, uh, the options on the table. I thought I'll just provide an overview of what the Quad means for India, but as well as how perhaps the region sees it and there are some of the complications and what the opportunities could be going forward. Um, of course, in India, the China conversation has changed dramatically and specific, and especially since the last uh, kind of the incident from the summer of 2020, the conversation had already started changing uh, with Prime Minister Modi, uh, Modi's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is really kind of the acceptance of India's in the Pacific as a theater. And over the last couple of years, we have seen more and more India from being initially between 15 and 16 being hesitant to now being more and more forward leaning in, in kinds of these sort of forums and specifically the Quad. Um, the Indo-Pacific and the Quad is also an opportunity for India to address many of its concerns through partnerships and partnerships in itself is a key approach in India's Indo-Pacific um, vision and framework. So it certainly sits within how India is looking to engage with the world, engage with the region. Um, <clears throat> But within the Indo-Pacific, and I think this is one of the complications, perhaps within the Quad itself, the immediate areas of priorities geographically is quite different. For India, it's the Indian Ocean. For Australia, it's the South Pacific. For Japan, it'll be a little bit of Western Pacific, South China Sea, China, East China Sea, and, and the US would be a little bit of everywhere. So I think especially with limited resources and limited capacities, when push comes to shove, each country is going to choose to invest and prioritize that particular immediate theater and that region. And I think that's where a little bit of 
uh, complication is there in terms of geography, but the fa- but there is a col- uh, agreement and an understanding, I suppose, in the larger convergences of the norms, the regional system that the four seek to create, as well as the answers, I guess, uh, the, the value in coordinating and providing answers to regional problems and issues. And in that, a key component of, and, and Dr. Matkaf touched on it as well, would be the regional engagement, who are the countries that the Quad engage with, whether it's bilaterally, or within the grouping format in the format of Quad Plus, uh, ASEAN countries, Indonesia, Vietnam, but also littorals and small island nations, because I, I do see the competition spreading out there, whether it's in the Pacific Ocean, whether it's the Indian Ocean, every time there is a port construction or, or a infrastructure construction in any of the islands across the Indo-Pacific, there is pretty strong reaction from four combined because uh, you know, it is seen as leveraging. So I think the competition is going to somewhat play out in that in that area. And, and these islands also sit close to very strategic trading routes and also are critical members of regional frameworks, which is at the center of Quad's engagement, whether it's ASEAN, whether it's Indian Ocean Region Association, whether it's Pacific Island Forum or whether it's African Union. So across the Indo-Pacific, you have these countries who are members of these critical regional forums and it'll be important to engage with them and to understand them. But even when we, I guess, even when the Quad engages with them, there is a difference in how we define security. Security is defined very differently, I would say perhaps from the bigger countries than the smaller nations. When the smaller nations talk about security, it would be from the point of view of climate change, from the point of view of illegal fishing, disaster resilient infrastructure, human trafficking, drug smuggling. So the Quad will have to find that balance between traditional security threats through military collaborations, naval exercises that it does in the form of Malabar or in the form of bilateral exercises. India has a bilateral exercise with all the other other three, as well as in the form of format of Malabar, as well as with the non-traditional security issues, which is to say surveillance and um, perhaps uh, monitoring for IUU or or disasters, etc. And to that end, there are already existing forums that can be leveraged. Uh, For instance, there's this International Solar Alliance that India India had announced. Australia is a part of it. Japan is a part of it. US is, there are conversations. There is coalition for disaster resilient infrastructure. There is the Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative. So I think there are there are enough platforms that exist already, but perhaps it would require coordination amongst the Quad in terms of where, what kind of projects that might be feasible given the different priority areas, who could be it addressed to. But I think uh, the, the required platforms and the required mechanisms today within the Quad exist to have these conversations and, and, and they are on track. Um, the, uh, uh, there's also another, there's also a functioning quad in the Pacific. There is, there is a quad that has been, that has existed for a long time in, in the South Pacific that actually caters and does a lot more of the non-traditional security issues with the Pacific Island states, which would be illegal fishing. And there might be lessons to borrow from that. And I think that is why we would also perhaps seeing quad prioritizing issues of cyber and tech and vaccine diplomacy, because these are uh, regional needs, these are regional demands. Um, the one thing I, I do want to point out while talking about regional collaboration is that um, when we are talking about the not just ASEAN, but um, in the Indian Ocean region with the islands or, or with the smaller littorals, uh, China is not always necessarily the bad guy. Sometimes China is that alternative because China does not have territorial disputes in the Indian Ocean islands or with the Pacific Island nations, whereas they have had to work with 
Australia and France and UK and Japan consistently over decades where they see no alternative out of that. So China is that alternative. And issues of Diego Garcia would also undermine narratives of rules-based international order, which they have continued to raise at the international forum. So there will be pushback on that in terms of what does the court mean uh, within issues of UN if, if, we, if court is saying uh, that regional framework works and we respect them and, and on one side and on the other side, they find it difficult to, uh, to match that. So I think going forward, it might be while Quad is engaging with the smaller nations, it might be useful to see the other prism and how they view the competition, how, how the region over whom the competition is. And I think uh, where the engagements are directed at, it might be useful to kind of get that perspective within the Quad discussions and to understand that and address some of that. Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be complicated, uh, uh, as we have seen uh, on, on different issues. But as I mentioned, I think the larger con conversations and the converging interests lie pretty wide uh, within the Quad itself. And the framework definitely is at the forefront of the many different collaborations in the Indo-Pacific. There's, of course, trilateral collaborations between Japan, India, and Australia. There's also India, Australia, France, and there are multiple different levels of uh, minilateralism, I guess, that uh, India is choosing to advance its, 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 uh, its uh, um, uh, regional engagements. Um, the, I, I do suspect the competition with China, not just with the US or with India uh, bilaterally, but collectively in the region will increase as well. Um, I also see the Chinese vulnerabilities lie in the Indian Ocean region because that is where the major shipping routes for them go by. They still feel more comfortable perhaps in the South China Sea in the Western Pacific, but not as much in the, in the Indian Ocean region. And one key sub-region that is perhaps missing from the Indo-Pacific conversation is the coast of Africa. Uh, which is where the first Chinese base came up. And I do suspect there will be more and more collaborations or impact from it. China's engagements and um, investments in the region has been pretty consistent. And I do see that going forward. So uh, perhaps China is one country who has looked at Indo-Pacific cohesively in terms of East to the West, whereas ours has been the Quad within Quad itself may have been divided uh, geographically, different commands in different, different institutions uh, and within the different, I guess, agencies. So that is one thing I do, uh, I think is important to talk about the African coast and the role Africa is gonna play in actually uh, the Indo-Pacific structure uh, there has been there has been a lot of uh, uh, initiatives as well. India and Japan announced the Asia Africa Growth Corridor, but not much has come out of it because of again I see the different perceptions and priorities that the countries hold. Uh, uh, but I think uh, Quad would. But but uh, in in conclusion, I would I would say that I think uh, Quad would probably have to prior uh, would probably an issue based coalition where there would be particular issues and regions that the court will agree and agree on there's already conversation at the highest level of government we are expecting a court summit sometime this year perhaps uh, that shows political will and from an indian point of view that is extremely important it is a very big step forward to show that political will uh, within that of course there has to be conversations on what that can translate into how far each nation is willing to go and what is the end goal toward it. And those conversations have started and I do definitely see uh, Quad being the, what Dr. Metcalf said as, as a benefit, uh, as a, benef a beneficial uh, platform and a, and a provider for regional goods. And I think that is the conversation that now would need to be carried out to the region and, 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 uh, and 
and con- and conveyed in true bilateral conversations as well as trilateral conversations or, or regional forums that what is the Quad willing to do and what is the goal within it. Uh, I'll stop there. Oh, terrific. Thanks, Darshan. And I appreciate really how you uh, highlighted two things we'll come back to. Uh, the first is political will. Um, in geopolitical terms, the exact issue set or agenda right now at this moment is probably not as important as the intent and will of the four countries to work together for, uh, for regional uh, stability. And I, I, I also think we will come back to your very important point about the variable geometry, the eclectic nature of, of, of collaboration and institution building alliances. The Quad is not NATO and Asia is not Europe. And this is gonna be a complicated mess of um, institutions and arrangements and alliances and fora. Uh, but the quad's clearly emerging as sort of where the cool kids hang out now. It's it's definitely um, one of the more important clubs in this complicated high school called the Indo-Pacific. Um, Nobu, over to you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Hi, Rory. Hi, Darshana. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me in this group. I have uh, se- several points. The, we, are, we are now on the watershed of the Asian history. We say liberal international order, but it's quite new in, in Asia. We're at creation of Asian liberal order. And the Australia, India, Japan were from the beginning democracy after the war, but many nations were not. They were under colonial rules. They were racially discriminated and they got independence in 1950s, 1960s. And after that, unlike India, they were under long dictatorship. They outstripped of this dictatorship only in 1980s, 1986, the Philippines, 1987, the the Korean Republic, 1990s, the coastal ASEAN nations and the Taiwan under the Lee Tanfei. And we have to embrace them. Some are slipping back. In Myanmar, they are slipping back into chaos. In Thailand, the royalty is becoming shaky. And the, we, we see many problems in, in Asia, but they are very proud democracies. They don't want to be treated as pupils of democracy. They want to be treated as an equal partner to build this new order, liberal order in Asia. And we have to be successful. The biggest challenge is China, because they were with us to see Russia collapsing. Now they are stepping into Russian imperial shoes and claiming that they are the new leader of the communist empire in Asia. It's a very big mistake, but under Xi Jinping, they're headed in that direction, unfortunately. Unfortunately, they would be bigger than the United States by 2030 in terms of economic mights. And the United States is number two. Amazing, isn't it, to hear that? But that would become a reality by 2030. And the, the military, U.S. is already the military monster, but China is already a military quasi-monster, and nobody can match Chinese military might in Asia except the United States. That's sheer reality here. Russia is, they don't like Chinese very much, but they are coming closer, closer to China, and China is determined to, to take back the Qing dynasty's territory, Qing dynasty's tributary states, and Qing dynasty's glory. They don't understand our West, Westphalian system here, they don't understand the equality of the sovereign nations. They don't understand the, they don't share the liberal version of world history like us. And we have to wait, but we have to try to change China. It's, it, they can change only from inside and they will not change very easily. And that is the decades coming before us. 
Uh, U.S. is divided, sorry to say that, but uh, the Trumpians are still there. And Republicans are changing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's scary for us, but the U.S. leadership, are very happy to see Mr. Biden, but the leadership must be backed up by the political will military might and economic might. And the Brexit, the UK, UK is shaky too. They are coming to the Indo-Pacific. We're very, very, very happy to see that. But Europe is divided. We have to, the Germany is now sharing our concern for the first time, the Indo-Pacific concern. It's a very good thing to, to, to see. Italy, Spain, Poland should be should be persuaded more. And we need Europeans. And Taiwan is becoming a real issue now. And before, 10 years, 10 years ago, China was our size in terms of military and economy. And we didn't think that they would invade Taiwan one day. Today, we don't think that they would do that, but they are capable of doing it. That's a big change in terms of capability. They can do it now. 10 years later, they can surely do it. I can't wait to really stop it. And we need a uh, diplomatic coalition here. And we need some robust deterrence. For that, Japan should pay more for, the, for domestic uh, defense budgets. And Xi Jinping is a particular leader. I, I never I never see this kind of Chinese leader after 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 Mao. Wen Zhaobao, the Fu Jintao, and so these people are very different. They are typical Chinese, Chinese high-ranking officers, talk a lot, very elegant, and po- writing poems and <laughs> playing, playing music. And they are that Chinese aristocratic leaders. Xi Jinping is like Mao, he's a fighter. He's a fighter and a domestic power struggle in the party. And he, he's a true fighter. And the, he, he, he is determined to be as great as Mao, as a big mistake. But he's headed in that direction. And unfortunately, he consolidated his power. Now nobody can stop him. So we should be careful during he, during he is in, in, in that post. And for that, we have to cooperate. China changed a lot since 2008 after Lehman shock. They're overconfident. And we have to we have to truly dissuade them. And one day they could be like us, but it would be maybe 30 years or 40 years later. During this time of Chinese transition, we should be robustly, robustly coordinated and united. And the Quad is the key. The Quad is Quad simply because we have only four. <laughs> I don't mind it's 20 or 30. I want to call it 50, but it, it's only four. So that's the reason why we say Quad. Korea is now still very shaky. They, they were, two, 2,000 years, they were not allowed to raise a big army by China. So they, they were always settling over two big nations, and they survived in that way. And they cannot still, not yet, capable of taking strategic stance, position in Asia, although they are now very big country, very big military force, but they can't do it. And so we need to engage more and more, more nations, and we should head it for Europe, because they do share the values they don't share strategic interests fully with us, but they do share values, and they are capable of doing that. French, British, Germans, possibly Italians, and Brussels, of course, and the, the possibly Poles and Spanish. And we should engage Europeans. And then we should go, of course, New Zealand, of course, but uh, we should go to ASEAN nations. There are three maritime ASEAN nations who are never under Chinese influence for 2,000 years that Indonesia and the Philippines like us, they were not tributary. And Vietnamese hate, <laughs> they don't like Chinese very much. They're very capable militarily. And we have to engage these nations. And there are big ones too. Thailand, the smart one, the Philippines, and Malaysia. And Myanmar is now in chaos. I'm sorry to say that, but it's very difficult to engage with Myanmar. But we have to, we have to expand that. Quad is the core 
this is a basis. But on that, we have to build a more uh, bigger diplomatic coalition there. Militarily, it's not it's not very easy. Militarily, the the Japan, US, and Japan, Australia are the core, and the Korea could be should be engaged, and we should start talking quietly with Taiwan, and we should ask help from Europeans, and ASEAN nations would be not very helpful in the in the military military domain, and we should engage them in the economic domains, and we should engage them in the diplomatic domains. That's what we have to do. And this is not NATO, very weak, but this is the only way to go. And we have to face China and destroy them for maybe coming 30 years. And what is the core for that? Thank you very much. Excellent, Nobu, thank you. And uh, your comments were were perfect, and your background setting also was perfect for a conference on troubled waters. Um, and I think your comments on uh, Xi Jinping are noteworthy. We should come back to them. When historians asked who brought back the Quad, uh, was it Trump? Was it Biden? Was it you know Abe Shinzo or um, uh, you know Modi? The answer is it was Xi Jinping. Right. That's <laughs> who brought sorry. back the Quad? <clears throat> and uh, so let me let me pose some questions to you each um, unpacking some of your excellent comments. Uh, I want to turn back to domestic uh, politics and um, and the durability of the Quad within each of the four countries. You know, the Quad, a lot of the discussion <clears throat> that you read about the Quad is about who should be in and who should be out, what should the agenda be, what are the mechanics. But, but to me, in many ways, the most interesting aspect of the Quad and, and Darshana touched on this with willpower. The most interesting aspect of the Quad is what it says about how the major maritime democracies approach the rise of China. And um, as you've all heard me say, the, the Quad history actually goes back much further than 2004. Um, it goes back to the 1850s when Commodore Matthew Perry returned from uh, opening Japan and gave speeches in New York. Uh, I've written about this in my book, calling for the cross of St. George and the US and Japan, the stars and stripes in Japan to maintain a, a, a stable Pacific. Uh, and if you replace the cross of St. George with the Royal Australian Navy and Indian Navy, that's his idea. <clears throat> Alfred Thayer Mahon in the 1890s wrote about a quad. He included Germany because Imperial Germany at that time was considered a new power and friendly power in the Pacific. So they're out maybe coming back, as, as Noba mentioned. But again, it's the maritime democracies. And um, what the Quad's emergence, demise, and reemergence says is not just about Xi Jinping and geopolitics. It's about how each of our countries approach regional order. And, you know, at the time that the Quad was um, receding between 2008 and 2017 you know, or so, in public opinion polls in the United States, um, a plurality of Americans said, to manage China, we should improve our <clears throat> cooperation with Beijing, even if it hurts relations with traditional allies like Japan and Australia. So the zeitgeist in the United States was about a concert of power and, and, and strategic dialogue. And I think that was probably true in many ways for the Rudd administration, for the Rudd government. Um, to a lesser extent at the time for Manmohan Singh and certainly for Fukuda Yasuo and uh, the DPJ initially. <clears throat> um, today in American public opinion polls, including polls we've done at CSIS, 
uh, about two thirds of Americans say we should work with our close allies and partners, um, even if it hurts relations with China. And in a survey we did of about 500 American thought leaders, 82% said the way to manage the China issue is strengthening our alliances and partnerships. It's very much a bipartisan consensus in the Congress. So the politics have really changed in the US. There are a few critics of the Quad left in Washington. <clears throat> um, the People's Daily in Beijing very helpfully praises them, which reduces their influence even more. Same is happening in Australia if you pay attention to the Chinese media. Um, so it certainly seems like the domestic political uh, basis for the Quad as a, as, a, as, a, as a broad way to approach the China problem. There will be disagreements about how much to do on climate change, how much to do on defense, but it certainly seems like the, the, the strategic view of in our four democracies has really shifted fundamentally. I would argue that's the case in the US, but let me start with Rory and, 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 and get each of you to tell me how durable the domestic politics, the zeitgeist is on the quad and on this overall approach to managing the China problem. Rory, why don't you kick it off? Thanks, Mike. And look, I think the short answer is that it is it is now highly durable in Australia. Um, and that's not something I would have said 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, but to, 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 to sort of simplify it for um, an international audience that maybe doesn't uh, enjoy studying Australian politics as closely as I do, um, you know, there was a time where the, the Labor Party, the centre-left, uh, mainstream party um, was cautious about the quad or even critical of the quad and the centre-right conservatives, the so-called Liberal uh, Party of Australia was, was generally pro-quad. We now have consensus and even Kevin Rudd, uh, Prime Minister who, um, you know, some of the histories attribute, uh, I guess, held the dagger um, you know, when, when, when Quad 1.0 fell over in early 2008, um, and, and Kevin Rudd contests this, of course, and, and, you know, claims that he wasn't quite as responsible for this as some of the history says. But even Kevin Rudd is now a huge advocate of the Quad, you know, wrote recently, I think it was in Foreign Affairs, um, about how important the Quad is. The, um, the Australian Labor Party a couple of years ago uh as they reluctantly began to re-embrace the quad, said, okay, we, we like the quad now as long as it does not meet at leaders' level, as long as it doesn't do military exercises together. They've dropped all of that. And, of course, it's because there's economic and comprehensive coercion against Australia, it's political interference in Australia, um, the way has actually united Australian public opinion on this issue. And I don't see this going now, going away, self-reinforcing dynamic. Um, there's no question that India and Japan now are seen as highly trusted uh, friends in the Indo-Pacific. And for all of the ups and downs in the alliance with the United States, um, you know, we see it rating consistently highly in Australian public opinion. And I think the Biden administration has certainly helped in that regard. So, you know, as we say in Australia, no worries on this one. Excellent. So, <clears throat> Darshana, it, a lot of people would argue that India is the pace setter for the Quad because, you know, the US, Japan, US, Australia have a long history as treaty allies and, and we have a 
significant, the less remarked upon trilateral security relationship that began in around 2001, and it's quite robust. Um, but it's really India that's sort of the a little bit of the um, different <laughs> actor uh, because of non-alignment and uh, strategic autonomy and all the rest. But it sure seems that Delhi now is eager to move the quad forward. Is that a temporary thing because of Daklan and fighting in the Himalayas, or do you think it's sustainable and has political support across the aisle in uh, in Delhi? I think I think the quad is um, you know I think the quad is a good vehicle for India to answer and address a lot of the challenges that it faces within the neighborhood. So I think Quad is something that would exist even if you were to take the China, immediate China problem out of the in the question in the sense that I don't think that's going away. But if we were to suddenly resolve the border issue or like, you know, that the conflict, I think it would exist. It would still exist, not Quad in the way, I guess it's talked about like as an answer or a formal alliance to like push back China militarily, but as a way for India to address a lot of the concerns in the region, because India's foreign policy has also changed its engagements with the region, its political ambitions, its diplomatic footprint. And for a lot of that, Quad is a very necessary vehicle. So why India is um, sort of, you know, Putting the emphasis on quad, it also equally puts the emphasis at bilateral relationships. For instance, in the Indian Ocean, one of India's perhaps most critical partnership is with France, who's not necessarily part of part of the quad. So I think India will make those differences in terms of continued bilaterally and trilaterally. And quad is one of the it sees it sees value. And I think as everyone's pointed out, China's made it easier, uh, changed the uh, question on that. Uh, China's made it easier for, for India to push, take it forward. But also on the boundary issue, I mean, there are still concerns domestically in India where to say, would the Quad show up uh, the next time China and India has something like what happened over the summer? But I'm not sure the government itself wants something like that collective response. It's going to be perhaps more at a bilateral level through intelligence sharing or information sharing and equipment and technology, which is going on. So I think, and India also, of course, has its own very different, India's relationship with China is, of course, also very different than the, all the other three as well, because there is a direct physical, you know, confrontation and the border dispute that India has to live with. And that will be part of India's calculations and problems. And that problem is not going away. It's a similar problem with Pakistan. I don't think so it's getting resolved in my timeline. So I'm not sure what the, the future holds. So I, I do think that the Quad um, is here to stay. But at the same time, I think it's also important to underline that Quad is one of the forums for the Indo-Pacific. It's not the forum. I think in between there was a danger that uh, failure success of Quad was equated to the failure success of Indo-Pacific. And I don't think so. That is probably right because Quad will have disagreements for countries with their own strategic priorities and national interests will always have their own differences and convergences. Uh, so I wouldn't say that the Quad is the underpinning. It is one of the like a, I, I would say a headliner, but uh, perhaps there would be other forums as well through which India would be engaging with the region. Darshana, one of the things that, one of the many things that worries me about the chaos unfolding in Afghanistan it, is uh, the possibility that it will draw India's strategic gaze inward to the continent, north and away from the Indo-Pacific. Um, and in India's strategic community, um, the army has generally been dominant. Uh, not the Navy. And the Quad is a little bit more the child of the maritime thinkers in India as it is in Japan, the US and Australia. 
how do you see this? It depends on how well the airlift goes and how the Taliban behaves on a lot of factors. But how do you see the events in Afghanistan impacting the geopolitical thinking and political views in Delhi in the years ahead? Is it gonna, is it gonna pull India's gaze away from the Indo-Pacific, do you think, and, the, and East Asia? I think, so I'm not an Afghanistan expert, so I wouldn't want to kind of, uh, I, I'm probably not best to provide an assessment on kind of the immediate impact of it. But I'll say this, that the, the India's decision to engage with the Indo-Pacific was a concerted effort and a thinking to encourage, encourage and increase India's maritime engagements. So that was a, a, a decision that was led by, I guess, making an assessment of what resources are available, because it's not that India has started doing more of Indo-Pacific engagement and suddenly the Navy's budget in the defense has gone up. It has not. It's it's essentially still the same. But even without the Afghanistan problem, Quad was to, uh, sorry, uh, maritime and the Indo-Pacific was important because I think that will continue. So that's a concerted effort from India to engage with the maritime domain, because I think finally in South um, uh, you know, finally in, in, in the government, there is a realization that the maritime domain is perhaps an advantage and provides a leverage and an advantage in a way that the continental side may not be able to provide that. And the reason why Quad is important is that, that despite the limited budget for the Navy, partnerships are a great way to address a lot of India's conversations and in, um, secure its interests. And that's why logistic supply agreements have become so critical to India, which allows India to access military facilities and increase its presence and missions, which otherwise would have to put in your own set of capital to be able to extend that kind of presence, wide shipping agreements. And I think that's why Quad is important because partnerships are critical to India's maritime engagement. So um, there might be times where India might have to focus on you know weeks or months because of what is happening on the continental border but even when india was doing more in the indo-pacific it wasn't that it was moving away from its continental problem it consciously was engaging in the maritime domain realizing that there is some leverage to it there is some benefit into doing that and that india it perhaps fits well in india's own projected image of being a regional leader a maritime nation and kind of uh, the, the, the stage it wants to create for itself in the international forum. Very interesting, thank you. Um, so Nobu, I, I mentioned um, American strategic, influential strategic thinkers like Matthew Perry and Alfred Thayer Mehan, but around the same time um, in Japan, uh, Katsu Kaishu, Sakamoto Ryoma were arguing for a maritime strategy and, and they lost. And Japan had a continental strategy. Yes. And then in the post-war, I'm writing a book on this. This is an, an advertisement. <laughs> and then in the post-war period, you know, people like uh, Kosaka Masataka, who I briefly studied under at Kyodai, and Okazaki Hisahiko, who we both knew well, also argued for this kind of maritime alignment, maritime strategy. But they were the, you know, the old saying, kaigun wa kanarazu makeru, the, the internationalists, the maritime strategists, <laughs> the internationalists and the Heike clan. But you know the the maritime thinkers in Japan really lost a lot of political battles throughout Japan's modern history. It seems like that is done. That I I, I don't know of any politician in Japan who opposes this this approach. I wonder if even the Japanese Communist Party now supports the Quad at some level. So <laughs> it, it seems. And by the way, I, I think it's that consensus in Japan and that persistent and in some ways patient pursuit of this formulation by Prime Minister Abe that eventually built 
the consensus in Australia and in the US and in India. You know, Xi Jinping gets the gold medal for the quad, Abe gets the silver medal. Um, <laughs> but how do you see the politics? Is there any backlash? Is there any hesitancy at all? I, I don't see it, but but, but I, there I, are I a lot of things happening. No, in Turkey I, don't, I don't think so. The, the expansion into the continent is now Japan was always being outside Chinese sphere of, sphere of influence for 2000 years. It's only Hideyoshi and the Imperial Army who tried to be expand, tried, tried to expand in, in the continent. It, it's a it's a rare exception, and it's impossible to expand in the congested Chinese continent. There are many neighbors there. It's not Siberia. It's impossible to expand that. Just like Germany fell and failed to expand inside Europe, we can never expand ourselves inside the Chinese continent, and we never do that, and we'll never do that again. And the expansion into the maritime sphere was the naval naval strategy uh, enhanced by uh, Sato Tetsutaro, the, the admiral. He was he was a very very vocal proponent for that, but he, but he he failed. He couldn't persuade the army. Uh, I mean, army expanded just outside the control of everybody. Emperor was angry, prime minister was angry, but just they did it. And now night's over. Nobody thinks about the continental expansion at all. We have to expand outside Japan, and it's it's a bit slow. But Japan is an isolated nation, long, long time, and they are still not yet capable of crafting a true global investment maritime strategy. But we have to do that now. And inside Japan, I have to say, the, these days the national security circle is vocal. NSC and Foreign Ministry and the Defense Ministry they 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 just they are vocal inside the government, and the. Our economic econ cycle, like the finance ministry, Menti, and the business cycle, and they didn't share the the same strategic vision as as foreign ministry and defense defense ministry. They were they were just inside the liberal world, and their enemy was the United States Americans. <laughs> this is a business rival. They didn't they never thought of the Russian threats and Chinese threats. Now now we are saying that the now it's time to think truly about national security for them. They never thought about it. But it's gradually penetrating inside METI and inside the finance ministry and even inside the business community. They were they were complaining a lot. We are we are making money in China. Why the government intervenes? Now they are, they are now they are a bit different. They are truly really thinking of how to survive in this global competition between the United States and China. It's 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 coming. It's changing. Leftists, our leftists are the senior leftists are not liberals. They are they are they are very much. Proponent of Russian Revolution. <laughs> they wanted to have a revolution inside Japan in 1950s, 1960s. And they are now very much senior. And even them, even them, they don't share sympathy with China. Because for them, it's not Marcus's state at all. It's, it's a very different state now. And they're expanding. <laughs> they are imperialists. And they, they don't share sympathy towards China. And young Japanese are very different. And they are truly angry against the Uyghur situation in China. They do share the human rights sort of indignations. Uh, they, they are just like American youngsters. They're very much different from the, the old senior leftist people. And the Senkaku issue is a big issue. China can buy some of our <laughs> business people. The, the economic interest is huge. They are now expanding the insights. The inside Chinese market is still expanding. And many foreign companies are still making money there, Americans and Japanese and Europeans. But they are now poking into our eyes every day, sending the 
Coast Guard ships into Senkak Islands and chasing our, our fishermen and the Japanese are very angry. And this physical bullying is a big failure for China. They antagonize everybody. Now, very large population says that I don't like China because they bully us over Senkak Islands. It's a big mistake for Chinese. And now lastly, Taiwan is now looming as a big shadow over our security circle. And it's amazing. Last year, Taiwan was a taboo for many diplomats and the military people in, in Tokyo. Now today, in the morning show, the comedians are talking about Taiwan contingency. <laughs> amazing, isn't it? It suddenly became a big agenda in, in Japan. And unlike Korean contingency, many understand that the Korean contingency, you have a big Korea here, and we take care of missiles. That's Korean contingency for us. Taiwan contingency is very different. We'll be directly involved. Okinawan Islands will be involved. And they could be a battlefield for Taiwan and the Chinese conflicts. Now it's it's a it's a it's it's a different dimension for us. And this kind of military thinking is now coming up. So the atmosphere is now is now steadily changing. And the many people who are indifferent to national security is now becoming very sensitive to this kind of discussion. Pivot off of your comments on Taiwan, because, um, you know, when the Quad formed in the midst of the tsunami in 2004 and 5, uh, when Prime Minister Abe proposed the Quad Summit in 2006, I don't think people were thinking Taiwan or Taiwan contingencies were the reason for this. But now, um, even Japanese comedians uh, are talking about Taiwan. And... Um, if you're following the debate in Washington, um, there is a growing consensus that the Taiwan Strait situation is more dangerous than it has been in a generation. There's a debate about whether or not China would use force, but the willingness to use force is higher. Everyone agrees on that. The risk is higher. It's, it, it's now a core part of the discussion with Japan and for the first time really in a public way with Australia. Um, you mentioned uh, it uh, just now, Nobu. Rory, how do you, I mean, the Quad, only the United States through the Taiwan Relations Act has anything like an obligation to preserve the security in the Taiwan Strait. No, no, Australia, Japan don't have that in treaty form or in law. Um, but of course, it directly affects Japan's security and, and Australia's. Um, Rory, how do you see that debate? And does the Quad is it helpful or harmful to the Quad to have this Taiwan issue now looming? What do you think this is going to do to the debate in Australia and thinking about cooperation with the US and Japan in particular? Well, look, we, we, we can't wish away the Taiwan issue and nor should we wish it away. It does matter. And I think that in Australia, there is increasing you know, awareness that a, um, a, a threat to the, the, the freedoms of a democracy of 23 million people, um, that's actually quite a familiar number for us. We're, we're a democracy of 25 million people and we're on, a, on an island too. So, you know, there's, there's beginning to be a more serious awareness of the Taiwan issue in Australia. There is obviously a reluctance to talk about it openly or publicly in terms of military contingencies. One of our public servants uh, stirred a lot of controversy a few months ago when he talked about the drums of war, even though of course, um, if there are drums of war, um, they're, they're probably beating in China more than anywhere else. Um, but look, when it, when it turns to the Quad, I would say that um, it would be very useful for whether it's whether it's 
uh, among the four countries uh, as a quartet, whether it's bilaterally, trilaterally and other combinations, I do think we need to be talking about um, the Taiwan situation and talking not just about warlike scenarios, but actually talking about the constant extreme pressure that China is putting on Taiwan, uh, you know, the, 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 the coercion, the extreme pressure that's occurring in areas like, um, like cyber, like propaganda, like uh, economic threats, uh, because in some ways those could be areas and, and areas to do with, with technology generally or, or economic assurance, those could be areas where our countries could begin coordinating now um, without raising immediately that question of who does what when the shooting starts. Um, I do think that we have to think about over time what quad countries would do in those scenarios. Of course we do. And if we saw a contest of blockade and counter blockade, well, in fact, the quad countries have the geography, have the capabilities to, to play their part there. But I think the more useful conversation is how can we uh, protect, uh, I guess, Taiwan as part of the region uh, and protect the stability of the regional economy, which China is jeopardising the more that it raises the temperature on Taiwan. You make a very important point that dissuading China from using force or coercion against Taiwan is not a purely military problem. It's about diplomacy, it's about uh, economics and trade and standing up for values that we share with Taipei. None of those involve carrier task forces. Um, but, you know, 25 years ago or so when the Taiwan crisis uh, hit, I was in the, in, in the Pentagon at the time, um, the US Navy was able to steam two carrier battle groups through the South China Sea and near Hainan to off set or to put off uh, guard or back foot uh, the PLA. And the PLA Navy was much smaller then. Now, the danger we face is in a Taiwan contingency is not just the strait, it's the whole first island chain, the second island chain. And the PLA Navy is now positioned to start trying to flank us, cut off Australia, isolate Japan. So the, the space we're talking about is geographically much bigger. And to me, it's almost inevitable. I don't think the US can execute a strategy to support Taiwan should it come to that without Japan. And I think that's well understood in Tokyo. Uh, but increasingly because of the broadening battle space that's evident in Chinese thinking, it's gonna be pretty hard for Australia um, to, I would think, uh, watch uh, PLA operations in the South China Sea and elsewhere, and even India. Um, Darshana, I'm sure that the Indian Navy is not eagerly looking to coordinate contingency planning for Taiwan right now, but to what extent is this Taiwan debate animating or, or, or perhaps um, causing hesitation in the debate in Delhi now? I think, I mean, um, I do see India probably in terms of its diplomatic conversations talking about it. I think Quad perhaps have also uh, privately and formally in, in bilateral ways talked about it because the one thing that has definitely changed or I see in India is even if if it is something that is not of at the priority level for India, if it is for other partners, India would have to engage with it. Like it can't shy away. It might not be actively involved by by planning a I guess contingency like a from a from a military point of view. But uh, what you said diplom diplomatically, politically, economically, 
from uh, Taiwan is important for to India's tech conversation. So I do see different ways in which I guess India will remain engaged in that. Uh, that um, the Taiwan issue is not kind of an issue where India would stay away from it in the sense uh, as we speak, India is kind of deployed to the region in a, and in a way increasing exercises with more of the Southeast Asian nations. So definitely more through partnerships and in, in expanding its own um, engagements, which has been existing, which has been going on for decades now is just that, you know, that it's not, it's not something that has pushed India back, but um, or I not see anything in terms of where India is actively planning kind of a contingency, the way probably the conversation is in the US. Diplomatically, yes. Uh, from my point of view, should something come to that point on Taiwan, India would perhaps uh, double down on, on the Indian Ocean because that's what they would see as a problematic area or if there's a spillover. Or the fact that if China is able to do something like that on the Taiwan Strait, and 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 succeeds despite the alliance with the U.S., Australia, and and and, and Japan. Uh, it'll be a big concern for India for what it might be able to do in the Indian Ocean region. So I would say India double down in terms of its resources from the Malacca Strait onwards and provide whatever it can diplomatically, trade onwards or, or or politically, I guess, on that. But not in the way of an active probably uh, deployment toward that. At least not at this point. Um, you know, we're speaking in our personal capacities, I guess three of us have been in government. We're not speaking for government. I'm speculating here, but it would take a lot of self-restraint for the PLA to not try to backfoot, try to complicate American operations in the Indian Ocean in a Taiwan contingency. The fifth fleet, um, this, the, you know, the Indian Ocean is where we do the swing strategy historically in the US and Australia, all the way back to the first world war. And if the PLA is moving towards a strategy or planning that goes beyond the Taiwan Strait to the first island chain, the second island chain, it would take an lot, a, lot, a lot of self-restraint for them to not complicate US operations in the Indian Ocean. Um, and one thing the PLA has not been careful about is triggering, counterbalancing by other powers. Um, so I think personally speaking for myself, um, if things get hot in Taiwan, India will find itself with some tough decisions purely based on Indian Ocean security. Um, so Nobu, you mentioned uh, uh, values and democracy and Rory, you did too. And, you know, as a, you know, strategy nerd, I'm one of those people in Washington who eagerly awaits uh, white papers out of Canberra and <laughs> national security strategies out of Tokyo. And um, I've noticed over the last decade, um, increasing reference to values and democracy being threatened. Uh, in Australia and Japan in ways you would not have seen, although we share those values, but you would not have seen them articulated in the same way. And you both just mentioned it. There are two summits that Joe Biden will likely do um, in the next few months that his predecessors didn't do. One will be the Quad Summit, probably in September. We'll, we'll, it, I think it depends on the Japanese election in part. And the other is the Democracy or Summit. Uh, whether it's a summit of or a summit on democracies, how would you square those two things? We, we you know, the the American, Japanese, and Australian governments and speakers reference values a lot with the Quad. India is a little more reticent about it, um, but this is going to be a big deal for Joe Biden. You know, after Afghanistan, I would say even more so. Um, let me uh, start with Nobu because you've been such a an influential thinker and policymaker in, in, in how Japan articulates values in foreign policy. 
how do you how do you do the democracy summit? How do you do values? How do you emphasize our shared values in a quad context? Um, in particular, because there are questions about India's democracy, but also American democracy, uh, as you noted. So, Noble, what's your advice? The quad is a sort of the normalization of American strategic vision, because Americans, you know, had starting to destroy Hitler. And Americans the hugged Mao and Chu to destroy Stalin. <laughs> and then the by reaction, Dr. Kissinger pushed away India towards Russia. This is what happened in 1970s. And Indians are not very happy. Now we are taking back Indians' hands towards us. And India is born democracy. It's a creation of Nehru and Gandhi. It's quite natural that we stand up together. So we have to make a quad as a basis of the maritime democracies in Asia and in the Pacific region. And this is quite natural. And we have to engage one by one the new democracies. The Philippines and Vietnam is not yet part of free, but Indonesia and Thailand, these nations. And for them, we have to tell them that maybe I think Japan can do it. The, the essence of liberal thinking is that we are all free born or born free and equal and to pursue its, his, his or her own happiness. And the government is an instrument for that. That's a core thinking of liberal thinking. And this is very much Asian. In truth, Enlightenment thinking is born, say, 16th century in Europe. In, 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 in China, 2,300 years ago, Menchus was saying the people is the most precious, statecraft is less precious, and the, the emperor is the least precious, he was saying. And if the emperor is a bad emperor, he said, we can decapitate him. That was Chinese thinking. But they failed to invent institutions like the parliament and independent judiciary. They failed to do that for 3,000 years. But thinking is the same. And this thinking is very much widely shared, say, in India and by Hindus and in China by Confucius and Buddhists. And we do share the basic thinking here, but just institutions are Western-made. And we have to introduce that in Asia. And we can truly support this liberal order in Asia. We are at creation in Asia, the liberal order. We have to persuade them. Otherwise, China will rehabilitate their Qing dynasty system, the tributary system. They don't share this now. They truly want to be a ancient imperial power in, in Asia. They have nothing to nothing to propose. This is exactly what we are saying in 1930s. Kick out, kick out the white people. Take back Asia in Asian hands. And so what? That Japanese domination. <laughs> it was a big failure, isn't it? Now it's the world has changed. The, every Asian nation is independent. Now every human being is treated equally. There's no discrimination. This is not the world order in 1930s. China has nothing to complain about. They have to live together with us. Now they are changing that to their tastes. They're bringing back the old Chinese feudal empire. We can't accept that. We have to persuade Asians in that way. Asians are not very big nations. And when big ones fight, the instinct is don't involve me. That's them. But we do share values. So we have to sustain that together. Otherwise, we'll be overwhelmed by Chinese power. We have to persuade them in that way. And for that purpose, prosperity is very important. The free trade is very important. The investment is very important. And green technology is very important. And we have to bring them into this effort, in this, into this kind of ESG effort with them, with us. That's what we have to do. 
And this is still very much nebulous, the Asia, the order, the future order, 21st century, and we have to lead. We, we have to truly lead. So the, the one place on the continent of Asia where uh, British, American, and a lot of Indian troops fought to stop Japan's expansion was Burma. And because mm. geopolitically, Burma is the, the bridge, the linchpin, mm-hmm. the seam between the Indo and Pacific parts of Indo-Pacific on the continent, Indonesia uh, as an archipelago at, at sea. So we really can't afford to lose Burma in some ways. We couldn't then, we can't now. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Myanmar is, you know, in this terrible situation and Beijing is clearly backing the Tatmadaw, the military, yes. for geopolitical reasons. So nobody, how do we as democracies play the geopolitical chess game while Myanmar. also doing what you're saying by by yeah. by supporting and defending democratic norms that are so critical to all of us and regional stability. Myanmar. What, what, how do you operationalize that? Myanmar is not is not an easy one. We can we can we can be patient vis-a-vis the Manila, for example, vis-a-vis Vietnam. We can pressure them to change slowly, and they change slowly. But Burma is a bit different. That's the their army is our imperial army's creation. <laughs> that's, that's we know them very well, <laughs> and, and they governed the nation for 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 decades, and they have vested interests everywhere. And they can be they can they can play cards like Tencent, the, the the roadmap for democracy. They can do that, as far as they don't touch the military's vested interests. Aung San Suu Kyi just tried that, and then military fought back, and then they put the clock back, say twenty years. And now, now they are killing people. Now, not, this is not an easy situation. ASEAN nations are trying to still engage Myanmar, Myanmar, Myanmar the, the, the military governments. We try to do that. We, we have very good relationship still with them. But it, when they start killing people, and people know what the democracy is what the economic economic development is today. They do not want to go back to the military rule again. And this is a true true moment whether the military can still stick to that vested interest, govern the nation from the shadow, or the people just take back power. And this is a critical moment. Now maybe it's time to take a position. Japan was always, you know, take the right position with the G7 nations, but try to persuade them in the back, back in the corridor with ASEAN nation. Don't do that. Don't do this. Do that. And we try to engage them. They, they, they were engaged once in the roadmap for democracy, and they just they threw it away. Now, now it's now it's not easy. And China is happy to see that we kick out, kick around in Myanmar, but there are principles that we can't compromise. And this is a very heavy moment now. So, Rory, in the surveys that we've done at CSIS over the years on uh, geopolitics in Asia, we find that Australian strategic thinkers are a little more reticent about uh, democracy than Americans, Japanese, or even Indians. Although Indian respondents always are quick to highlight non-interference and those kinds of issues. Um, Does the Quad have a role in problems like Myanmar? Does the Quad have a role in defending democratic norms, in your view? Look, my... Advice would be that we play a, a multi-layered game here. That we that you know the quad reflects other things: convergence of interest and convergence of values among our four countries. But the quad itself, is, I think, should be the core of, of pretty flexible coalitions that include that can include non-democracies on an issue by issue basis. And of course, the big issue 
of um, of managing Chinese power and Chinese coercion uh, engages everyone. So, look, I do, you know, I, I I think we should probably focus the quad more on what I would call principles rather than values, which sounds like a, a slightly um, cute diplomatic um, piece of shorthand. But what that really what that really means, I think, we should focus more on issues related to um, the sovereign equality of nations, uh, respect for international rules and so forth, issues where we can engage that wide coalition. Uh, but by the same token, you know, where, where particularly the Quad countries can encourage an Indian position on Myanmar that goes beyond real politics, then, then we should do so. I, that is an important takeaway, Rory, principles as opposed to values, because of course our principles will be rooted in our values, but it'll be easier to expand the table when we need to. Um, Darshan, I'm going to go to questions, but do you have any anything to add on this uh, complicated question? Uh, good ideas, no solutions yet. Maybe you can save us. Uh, no, I think I, I agree with exactly what Professor Metcalf just said. I think it, it's it, it should be it should be multi layered, and also it should be uh, I think it completely case-by-case case and issue-based. Uh, the conversation between India and US also on this has changed. The recent visit by Secretary Blinken was, you know, where both basically acknowledged that there are problems within both countries and it's a working democracy, you know, it's a work in progress. So I think there are, uh, the conversation between US and India on this has certainly changed. The one thing I will say is that um, I also hear this a lot from regional countries, smaller nations and littorals where they feel that if you do not meet West's kind of definition for what is values and what is kind of norms, then it's harder to engage with them, whether it's on aid or whether it's kind of infrastructure engagements and stuff. So I think, again, if it is going to be on the point of view of, um, you know, the goal, what is the goal in, in engagement with the region, it has to be a little flexible on how to, because a, demo, because a nation who's been a de democracy for 25, 50 years and a nation which has been democracy for 20, 250 years will have different parameters and, and ability and capacity to define values and function in that. And I think we should be mindful of that while engaging with that and, and, and not like shun that out properly. And, and that is something that I hear uh, consistently uh, as I talk to uh, regional nations, smaller problems. Um, thanks, Darshana. I'm going to go to the questions and turn to you first, actually. Um, Watanabe Tsunio from Soskar Peace Foundation um, asked about the impact of COVID-19 on the Quad. Um, obviously, in the first virtual summit, the four leaders pledged a billion uh, vaccine doses. So, um, you know, COVID-19 was an opportunity to show our as, as in 2004 and five, our commitment to providing public goods. But in terms of capacity, uh, we've all been hit, but India has been particularly hard hit by COVID. Um, is it impacting uh, capacity for uh, India's, India's capacity to play this kind of strategic role or its commitment to the Quad, do you think? Uh, first, hello to Wadanabesan. I'm also a visiting fellow with the Sasakawa Peace Foundation and I just spent two years there. so. Uh, uh, good to hear from him. Uh, the COVID question, I think, yes, um, India has been hit hard, uh, especially in the last kind of wave of it. But if you go back to the initial phase of it, I mean, I think India was one country who was doing fairly well in, in terms of managing its, uh, its um, I guess, uh, the pandemic, not only domestically, but 
at an international level, India was, India did send a lot of vaccines to most of the nations across its neighborhood. Uh, not only vaccines, and I would say, it, it, and this place was critical as, as someone who studies the Indian Ocean region, where India sent out kind of medical teams to most of the island nations on whether it was COVID tests or managing and medical camps and, and, and able to engage. And despite, I think it's how hard it has been hit internally, India has been able to um, keep its engagement at least or offer the assistance that was necessary from its uh, from its immediate neighborhood. Uh, and some at some level, there has been bash, backlash domestically. We're saying like, you know, why are we giving away vaccines or aid or assistance to other countries where people domestically are being being hit so hard? But I think um, I, I do welcome the engagement where India has continued to be able to do that because it does show that despite the way India has been hit domestically, it still has the capacity to be able to reach out and do that. Uh, it is a pandemic. It is an evolving um, situation. Uh, there will be times where India would completely probably be engaged with addressing domestic concerns, not just pandemic. There might be social issues as well that will come up over the years and months. Uh, but I don't think so. It would... Uh, take away from it. I think and the pandemic has shown for everyone at different levels, there has been crisis and crisis management. The uh, US was not particularly doing very well at the first phase of the pandemic. And, and I think the, and, and in the second phase, it has been India. So um, I think this is also why collaborations have been important, where India has been able to perhaps will be able to address a lot of this with it. But it definitely is a question how much it comes back and how much of a long term impact the pandemic has on India's domestic capabilities, because the economics piece is important to it. Thank you. Um, Watanabe uh, Tsan had a good question. We also have a question from Gordon Flake. Um, uh, from Perth, um, and actually several people asked related questions about the impact of uh, the, the tragic events uh, unfolding in Afghanistan. And I asked Ashana for her take, um, but Rory and Nobu, starting with Rory, um, Gordon asked specifically, what can the Quad do to reassure allies and partners in the region that, um, that uh, in spite of what we're seeing in uh, Kabul right now, uh, the US and alliances and groupings like the Quad have staying power, commitment, capacity. Um, how, how do you see the Afghanistan variable? And then I'll turn to Nobu next. Look, I, I would say that in fact, the, um, you know, the, the tragedy that we are seeing in Afghanistan, and this will you know, play out over a long time. Um, in fact, it, it makes the Quad less. Um, the point that Dashana made earlier, I think I absolutely agree, and that is that, you know, India has embraced the Quad not because India is all-powerful, but precisely because India is stretched, um, and the Quad helps India address the maritime space just as India is going to have, you know, permanent problems on its land frontiers, whether it's with China or whether it's uh, it's now with the, the impact of um, resurgent uh, Taliban power in Afghanistan, which, which I think could well have a spillover effect um, into the, the levels of the violence in, in Kashmir. But I think that uh, a really important core for dialogue among a pretty diverse range of, of, of significant democracies about how we deal with a, a range of risks and threats. Um, I think the bigger question from the Indo 
responsibility and, you know, while the jury may be out on a lot of that, I, I am very wary of the United States is suffering, I think, to its credibility due to Afghanistan that somehow uh, the US um, Asian uh, context. I mean, uh, you know, the, the opposite could be true. So I'll Good. Th thank you. Nobu? Yeah, it depends upon how much U.S. would stay committed to, to, to Afghanistan, because Afghans, Taliban's don't like Russians at all. Uh, they won't they, they want bring in Chinese. Uh, Chinese are very clever. They don't do that. They ask Taliban's to take care of Uyghur fighters, and they, the Taliban will do that, and they get some money. And China's interested in their natural resources in, in, in Afghanistan, but they would never deploy forces like Americans and Russians did. That means the Taliban will be left there. They are not Al-Qaeda. They will not to destroy Pentagon and New York, New York World Trade Center, but they will be active inside Afghanistan in the region. But still, anyhow, they, they need somehow the, the commitment of the Western powers somehow. And that depends upon how much, how badly they have to treat the, the, the cooperative the people the, who, who cooperate with the Americans and how, how they treat the women in Afghanistan after Taliban rule. If they are decent somehow, somehow they are decent, maybe the Westerners could recognize the Taliban government and we could do something for them to improve their lives. But if they if they are very bad in dealing with the girls and the women, and if they massacre the soldiers and the officials who worked for the Americans, it is not easy for us to help them. And it's not easy to do anything for them. And the, so we have to we have to, we have to somehow watch how the new Taliban governments evolve in 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 in, in Afghanistan. And the that, that's the key issue. And the Quads, the US is the global power. You're committed in Afghanistan and in the Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Africa, Sri Lanka, but we are regional powers. So what we, we have to arrange the tools that we have. We could do something for ODA, these things. And the deploying troops are not easy for us at all in Afghanistan. But the, if the quads could work for the Indo-Pacific region, and the, maybe we should arrange some, some efforts. This is, I, 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 this, this, do remember, this does remind us the Japan-UK alliance. UK wanted to commit us everywhere. <laughs> and they said, up to Singapore, we do. They said, no, 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 it's not enough. They said, we said, up to, up to India. <laughs> they said, come to Kashmir, go to Afghanistan, they said. And this is exactly the repetition of the UK diplomacy. We'll do what we can do as far as US is committed there. And of course, the, the British con convinced the Imperial Japanese Navy to ferry Australian troops to Gallipoli. So, yeah, we, um, Navy did it, but Army Navy. just attacked the Qingdao in yeah. China. <laughs> so, um, look, the two-thirds of the American public in most polls supported pulling out of Afghanistan before all this happened. Um, the American public is fickle. Now, a majority think it's a bad idea, but um, two-thirds supported pulling out. Um, two-thirds consistently supported defending Japan, Korea, and Australia if they're attacked, and that's the general public. And in elite polling, including polling we've done, the numbers supporting uh, defending our allies in Asia uh, are even higher, and in most polls, the highest they've been in a generation. So I don't think this equates to isolationism or lack of commitment in Asia. In fact, the irony is one reason Joe Biden was eager for a decisive and quick move out of Afghanistan was to focus 
like a laser on strategic competition with China. Um, it, it was a bad idea because, of course, it unleashed questions about our commitment and it tied up troops. And the USS Ronald Reagan is now deployed in that part of the world, not the Western Pacific. So it was a it was a mistaken implementation for sure. Even President Biden's allies on the Hill say that. But I think politically what that will mean in Washington is that this Quad Summit will be even more important, even yeah. more important politically and geopolitically for the president. And it probably, at least from a U.S. perspective, is going to insert even more energy into the quad. And frankly, I think Guy Mouchot and DFAT are going to, I predict, will be a little bit surprised at how much the U.S. wants to pump this up right now. So, yeah. so stand by. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, we, we had a, a, quite a few excellent questions, some of which we addressed in our uh, in our discussion. Um, uh, one of the one of the questions uh, that came up several times from the audience is about how the Quad members are doing with ASEAN. Uh, it was a very smart play in the first summit to to pledge vaccines and things that help ASEAN to make this about helping Asia rather than stopping China. Um, but I, I'd like to ask before we conclude for a really quick sort of one or two minute assessment, because ASEAN is where the game of influence is being played. And uh, uh, so I'll start with you, Nobu. How do you think we're doing with ASEAN? Or, or is the Quad helping? Are we losing uh, Southeast Asia? Uh, what's your take? ASEAN is not monolithic. The, as I said, Indonesia, the Philippines, they, they are fond of Japan more than China. And Vietnam is, of course, they, they don't like Chinese at all. They're very, very close to us. And the Thailand's, the inner, the inside continentals, they, they, are, they, feel more, they feel closer to China by, by instincts. But the more China is becoming bully, they, they come towards us. Their instinct is to be neutral, don't involve us. But because China is bullying everybody these days, the, the maritime ones are coming towards us, the Philippines and Indonesia, the, the, the uh, Vietnam and Malaysia. And then the continental ones are thinking still. But the, the China, China becomes bigger and bigger. No, no, they can stop it. That means they, they, are, they are pushing the ASEAN nation towards us more and more. So we have to engage them. We can't expect much, very much the military contribution to us, but diplomatically, we have to engage them. Uh, Darshana, what do you think? I think I think there'll be probably more work done at the bilateral level with ASEAN between uh, from the countries directly. Maybe more coordination amongst the Quad on what the priority should be, and then implementation at the bilateral level. Then Quad as a grouping with ASEAN, because no matter how much each country refuses or denies it, Quad is seen as an anti-China coalition by most of the countries, whether it's Southeast Asia and kind of uh, there. The China conversation looms so large that it impacts their own bilateral conversation. You, they cannot wish away geography, I guess. Uh, China is uh, very much there. So I think in terms of being meaningful and impactful engagements, uh, it probably happened at a bilateral level. And the fact that each of the Quad members have put ASEAN centrality as a core piece of the Indo-Pacific approach already puts that on, on track. Rory? Yeah, look, I think Southeast Asia is vital. I think Indonesia is vital in Southeast Asia. And the I think the, the, the Quad members together individually and with other partners such as the Europeans really need to focus now on, 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 on the next few years uh, with Indonesia. It's not about aligning Indonesia, but it's about ensuring that uh, Indonesia isn't really um, leveraged by, by China into um, some sort of greater quiescence on 
geoeconomic issues, on vaccine diplomacy, on uh, inf on infrastructure. And I, th I think that, for example, helping Indonesia to protect and monitor its really important maritime uh, territory, uh, the sea lanes, the archipelagic waters, that's where Quad partners can still play a really big role. I think Japan's efforts, Australia's efforts, uh, let's, you know, Let's see uh, the Biden administration really doubling down on Indonesia. And I think the promise of an India-Indonesia partnership, uh, you know, to uh, really major, uh, major democracies in Asia, I think is, is yet to be fulfilled, but it's there. So I think I'd, I'd put my effort on Indonesia. So it sounds like the advantage of the Quad in a Southeast Asian context, uh, in at least one sense, is that if our four governments have a common strategic picture of what's happening and we know where the opportunities and challenges and threats are, we each have diverse relationships we can, we can harness. Uh, Japan has an excellent relationship with Vietnam, with the Philippines and Thailand. Australia has a close relationship with Indonesia and so forth. As long as we all know, all know what the strategy is, uh, we probably benefit from having uh, a variation of bilateral approaches. The image that comes to my mind whenever I think of the Quad and ASEAN is uh, medieval churches. You know, these big medieval churches in Europe have what's called a flying buttress, huge stone arches outside the church that keep it from falling down. But when you go inside the church, you just see the elegant stained glass windows and you're glad the buttresses are there, but they're not inside the church. And I, that's sort of how a friend of mine said, you really shouldn't use medieval architecture as a metaphor for Asian security, but that's sort of what, what image comes to my mind. The stronger that buttress is outside of ASEAN from the quad, the easier it is for ASEAN to maintain uh, or restore some level of solidarity, common purpose, stability. Um, so look, this has been one of the best, maybe I think the best conversation I've had on the quad in or out of government. And I'm, I'm so glad you were able to join us, uh, Nobu, Darshana, and Rory. Uh, thanks to uh, Creative Associates and the Prime Minister's Office in Japan. I understand there's a, a, a another one of these series in the Asian undercurrent, so stay tuned. But for now, uh, let me thank each of you uh, for joining us and everyone in the audience for great questions. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you Cheers. so much. Thanks. Thank you.